You are listening to the Enormo Cast. La Sportiva is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Mira, the greatest climbing shoe ever made, by messing with it. Careful, Sportiva. Careful. But using input from Adam Andra, they've come up with the Mira 20. The Mira 20 is the same precise toe of the Mira with a more supportive and aggressive heel for a shoe so precise that Adam Andra once carved a Christmas turkey with only a pair of Mira 20s and a dull ice pick. One of these days, Adam Andra is going to ask me to stop using his name in these ads. But until that happens, Adam Andra. Mira 20s are available only this year in a limited edition and only at retailers. But you can go to Sportiva.com for more information on the shoe and to find out where you can get a pair. And don't worry, the good old-fashioned mirrors are still around too. Hey climbers, that rock that you lovingly caress every weekend is just never going to love you back. Of course, it's never going to suddenly ask you what you're thinking right now either. But devoting even a tenth of that energy into an actual human relationship might be a better bet in terms of love and companionship no matter what your alpinist friends say. Peter W. Gilroy is here to help. Climber and jewelry maker, Peter can hook you up with just the right gift for that human in your life who just smiles when you get home late from the crag or who says, no, you're still hot when you're clearly chubby and out of shape and stink of failure or who's still belaying you even though you're falling lower and lower on your proj. Inspired by the rocks we climb and the mountains we love, Peter's jewelry and accessories might be just the thing to convince your significant other that you're not an obsessive crazy person in love with inanimate objects. So go to peterwgilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount on art you can wear and to help the Enormacast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Norman Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is May 22nd, about 9 o'clock here in Colorado. This is episode 129 of the Norman Cast, a conversation with alpinist Steve Swenson. And not much to tell you here at the Norman Cast this time around. No exciting news, just banging out episodes. Two a month since December 2011. I'm only off the pace by three episodes in five and a half years. I can't believe it myself. I know where two of them went. I don't know where the third one went. But one of these days, maybe I'll just drop a three-pack to get back up to speed. 
I can't believe it. I can't believe I've, I've pulled it off. So I'm patting myself on the back in podcast land right now for doing this. All face-to-face. I don't know why that's important. I just made it a rule. I think it is somehow. But I'm sure someone more talented can pull off just as good an interview on Skype as I can do face-to-face. But I've insisted upon it, and it's worked out so far. People are more interested in doing the show because of you guys making it popular. It's a thing, so people get in touch now. Publicists get in touch. Athletes get in touch. People want to do the show. And you guys actually get in touch and help me find folks and get in touch with them to do the show. So lots of touching here at the Enormacast. Hands, touching hands, touching me, touching you. The Enormacast, the virtual grope. The only little bit of news is myself and the entourage will probably head up to Lander next month or actually in July July 13th, I think, through the 16th. Uh, We don't have anything really set in stone, but it looks like we're headed up there again. So if you're interested in that thing and you're going to be out there, hopefully we'll run into you up there in Lander at the International Climbing Festival. All right, let's get going then. Steve Swenson. Man, this guy's a legend. And he may not be one of those climbers or a household name, but if you talk to folks who climb in the big mountains in Southeast Asia, They'll know and admire and maybe even revere Steve Swenson. He's been at it for 40-some years and has managed to keep a balanced life of family, of career, and of climbing expeditions almost almost yearly in that time. Plus, he's managed to keep his psyche for going up high and getting at altitude and getting into those intense situations up there. He just stays psyched for it. You know, a lot of folks, a lot of really good climbers have their day. And it sort of passes as they either burn out or just kind of read the writing on the wall. But somehow Steve has stayed psyched and maybe most importantly, stayed alive up there in the mountains. I also want to do a quick plug for Steve's book, Karakoram, Climbing Through the Kashmir Conflict. It's how he ended up in Carbondale. He's on a promotional tour for the book before he heads off for yet another expedition to Southeast Asia. It's an astounding story of climbing in that region from when it reopened through the Kashmir conflict with India, post 9-11 world, right up until now. Lots of unrest in the area, and Steve's witnessed and climbed through it all. So check that out at Mountaineers Books, and also look for Steve on the road. A couple more dates before he leaves for Pakistan, and then I think he's back on the road in the fall. So look for him coming to your town, AAC event or anything like that. This guy has a lot of wisdom, which we're going to find out right now. So let's talk to Steve Swenson. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. So go ahead and check out the new spring goods at blackdiamondequipment.com or better yet, your local shop. New headlamps, new lightweight outerwear like the Gore-Tex Liquid Point Shell and the Alpine Start Hoodie which incidentally, I recently dropped in the black. If anybody found it, enjoy my perma stink of fear. I've also really started to dig the Alpin Glow Sun Hoodie, a breathable wicking hoodie to hide from the brutal burning orb. Who knew that standing around with your shirt off or roasting under Sauron's eye wasn't the best way to stay cool? It's all there at blackdiamondequipment.com or your local shop. Support the Enormacast by checking out Black Diamond's new spring line. When I first started climbing in South Asia and then not knowing what the hell we were doing to kind of figuring it out, but taking a while because it takes a while. It's complicated. Right. Then having a a bunch of success and then at the end of the book really kind of talking more about 
kind of sort of some of the security issues now in the mm-hmm. care quorum and um, and then just kind of you know passing the torch you know like to these young guys that I'm hanging out with like Graham and Scott and Chris and people like that who are keen to go there but but are you know psyched to go with me because I kind of know what to do. So I talked to Graham recently and that's not been put out yet but that you know he was definitely shaking his head about how hooking up with you just took so much fear out of the logistics and everything else and reading the book just your casual comments about 200 loads needed to be carried in or you know 2,000 pounds of this or you know you said in one point in the book 250 pounds of food was being eaten a day by your whole crew of porters and you guys and uh, those sorts of numbers as just a rock climber and someone who's gone on expeditions that I call them that means I got on an airplane and went somewhere it just it's it's it almost makes me uncomfortable to think about the logistic part of that. And uh, we can just start there because I want to talk about your career. And since you just talked about, about how you were a beginner and maybe have arrived at this place of wisdom, is there something in your brain you think that makes you good at that? I mean, you're an engineer. Like For sure. When you put yourself towards this logistic thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first started with this stuff, it was, you know, I've... I've I've kind of had that sort of a brain, mm-hmm. you know, kind of figuring out logistics and, you know, numbers and how it all adds up. And, for example, the, the first expedition that that uh, we went on going into the Baltoro, where the last village is, it's a 14-day trek to get in there, and the last village is four days into the trek. So you have to feed all of your porters for hiking for 10 days. Well, if you needed 50 loads of... Of, of stuff to go to your base camp for you to be there for a couple of months. It takes a hundred porters to get you there because it's one porter to carry food for the porter that's going to get there. And, and then every day, you know, you're eating so much food, you're laying off about five guys a day. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that much money. So we had to kind of calculate that stuff pretty tight because porters were our biggest expense. Right. So that's just kind of an example of, you know, so I just kind of made up the equations, you know, for calculating how much it would cost for all of the porters based on how much stuff we had to go to base camp and then backed into it from there. And in my career as an engineer, actually, this kind of stuff is pretty easy, mm-hmm. actually, compared, right, right, right. compared exactly. to engineering stuff that mm-hmm. I did, which is actually way more complicated. And when you're talking about your career as an engineer, are you... Are you one of the guys that are like more of a project manager as well? As are you like a detail guy, or are you both? Well, you know, I mean, in my career, I spent 35 years as an engineering consultant okay. in water resources kind of stuff. So I did everything from it was mostly environmental, kind of dealing with water quality, you know, wastewater, um, well, then water supply, and then you know, kind of runoff run from the land, and mm-hmm. so you know, big computer models of watersheds and hydraulic models of river and channel systems, you know. That's kind of what I did. And when I was young, um, I started up just guy at the desk, you know, running the numbers and, and helping to write reports. And I kind of, by the time I was, you know, 10 or 15 years into my career, I was managing projects. Then I kind of realized that a lot of the work I was doing, most of the work I was doing was for municipal clients. And they all needed money. 
and they all had to get money from their elected officials. And a lot of the work we were doing, planning we were doing, the, those projects that needed to be done or things, they all needed money to implement them. Mm-hmm. And so if we didn't have money, these things would just sit on the shelf and nothing would get done. So about the last 10 years of my career, I spent working on utility finance with my public works clients and elected officials. Mm-hmm. So is that like crossover to raising money for these expeditions? Well, you know, uh, well, dealing with politicians and, you know, kind of the whole, that whole stakeholder process so that everybody feels good to pay more fees for something, which nobody ever wants to do, was, was about as, I mean, that, that's never easy. Right. And uh, raising money for the expeditions, I don't think that was that hard because, these trips we did were pretty small. Sure. We weren't doing these big... I, I kind of came into the, the, that sort of Himalayan climbing scene when the expeditions were sort of leaving that big national expedition. You'd get invited, and there was mm-hmm. like 30 climbers and, and, and these huge, huge things. You know, I mean, uh, when we climbed K2 in 1990, I mean, there were four of us. And, I mean, we organized our own trips. They were complicated. They could be expensive. But sort of between what we put into it ourselves in terms of cash and we usually had you know one or two you know um, sponsors and you know sometimes they'd be kind of crazy our trip one of our trips it was like a sardine company just somebody knew this guy you know and he threw in like twenty thousand dollars oh, nice. like you know i mean they could be sort of random do you like sardines I, I like sardines. Yeah, yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a bad mountaineering yeah. sponsor. Yeah. yeah. Well, this isn't a... Uh, I'm glad you switched it back to climbing because this is not a, a municipal water engineering podcast, although I'm sure there's one out there for people if sure. they want to yeah, find right. it. There's right. a podcast for everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, your career. When you were saying these early expeditions, when was the first expedition um, that you consider like a... a, a you know, full-on proper expedition to 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 South Asia. Yeah, to South was, Asia was you know we had a number of expeditions to Alaska and mm-hmm, things like that mm-hmm. before, but the first one to South Asia and it's the first trip I talk about in the book that I wrote, um, Kerkorm climbing through the Kashmir conflict, um, is uh, Gashabum Four in 1980. Okay, and you know. The reason we went there was because, it, you know, looking through books and doing research, it's such an incredibly beautiful mountain. Mm-hmm. I mean, that west face of Gasherum 4, the way it kind of shines up there at the head of the Voltoro Glacier, it's just iconic. And, and also, uh, at that time in 1980, uh, the Karakoram had been recently reopened to foreigners to go climbing there after about over a decade of being closed because of the conflict between India and Pakistan mm-hmm. over Kashmir. Kashmir. And the Karakoram Range sits smack in the middle of all these disputed you know, borders or, or lines of control between India and Pakistan and China. So, you know, in some ways we were taking advantage of the fact that, um, you know, the area is, uh, is, is contested mm-hmm. and it created this sort of candy store of first ascents and new routes for us because um, the closures had created this kind of political wilderness that okay. still exists till today, you know, so there's a lot more opportunities for doing new things there than other parts of South Asia where it's been open, you know, to foreigners for many years. Do you have a sense of why they opened it? Do they have a, does the government or, or whoever decided this have a sense of, of uh, the idea of tourists 
bringing commerce or do you have any, any idea why they opened it? Because it seems like it would be easier just to keep it closed. Well, you know, I, to me, I, I think the major reason why they reopened it was because it was a way for these countries that, had, that were controlling these areas to be able to justify their territorial claims. Okay. So, for example, you know, if you're a Pakistani government official and you can give a permit to a foreigner to go climbing here, then that's telling the world that we own this and you know we control okay. it and and we're giving permits and for people to go there uh, you know i think that there was you know certainly economic reasons and and people argued that but if if i was going to wager on that i i don't think they would care as much about that because those government officials i've seen them do other things you know since then where they completely ignored you know economic development mm-hmm. issues for mm-hmm. other political reasons sure. or security reasons so i think there it was completely like this is ours and we want to show the world this is ours do you think there's a serious influx of foreign capital or money or anything from expeditions or is it really just a drop on the bucket is is there a serious enough input, do you think? To yeah, well, really it could. Much of a in difference? the Karakoram, well, certainly places like Nepal, you know, it's huge. Right. But in the Karakoram, it's not because, and especially recently, because of all the political oh, instability, sure. it's pretty much devastated the tourist economy in the northern areas. I mean, right. 9-11 was a big blow to them. And then in 2013, there was a number of militants that came in from the tribal areas to the west and massacred a bunch of climbers at Nanga Parbat base camp. Mm-hmm. And then after that happened, it's like no one's going. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that economy could, if, if these other things weren't going on, it could be tremendous for those local people right. um, who are quite poor, um, but, it, but it hasn't. And it's been such a big up and down, you know, it's like they're having a great recession, you know, every few years that one of these incidents happens, you know, of terrorism or, um, you know, like a, you know international incident like 9-11. So they're kind of tired, I think, these people and local people up in the northern areas there in Gilgit, Baltistan, they're, they're tired of that and they're trying to diversify their economy and mm-hmm. do, do some other things. Such as, I mean, is there well, the opportunity? The, the sad thing about it is, is their plan seems to be that they really are investing a lot in education for their kids. So, and what that really means is that if their kids they get leave. more educated, they leave yeah. and they go to the bigger cities in Pakistan to work and send money back to the villages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that that so I think over time that those villages will just kind of depopulate themselves. That year uh, that attack happened, you said it was 2013. Yeah. Were you? Did you have an expedition? there that year no no had you did you cancel one or were you just not that just didn't happen to be your, your i year? did i um i'm trying to remember when that that would have been no i didn't have one okay. planned for that year right i was just curious if maybe it even scared you off or made, no. made you got on a plane and get out of there no no jesse was was there mm-hmm. jesse huey right and he came oh i back. do remember that yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's serious business. I mean, it, it, it's it was so shocking because you just don't include those two things together. You know, the climbing ideal. Yeah, and, and, and I think happened. what a lot of people don't realize is Nanga Parbat sits way to the west of the Karakoram. In fact, it's technically not part of the Karakoram. It's on okay. the other side of the Indus River, so it's really the very last 
the westernmost mountain in the Himalayas. The very eastern mountain in the Himalayas is 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 way over 1,500 miles, you know, to the east. And um, but further north in the Karakoram and Gilgit Baltistan, all those people up there are super friendly and peaceful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're all either Baltis or Burkashi people that are Shias, and all the bad guys over there are Sunnis, and they're and they're they're part of a tribe that are called Pashtuns. Mm-hmm. And Nanga Parbat is right near those areas where the Pashtuns are, and that's why you have security concerns there. If you fly from Islamabad to Skardu or Gilgit, where you get up in, into uh, Gilgit, Baltistan, you're completely safe. Mm-hmm. I would, would recommend to people to say, you know, should I go climbing there? I said, if you get up there in the mountains in Gilgit, Baltistan, you're totally fine. Right. You just have to get up there and don't take the road anymore. I don't think the Karakoram Highway is safe anymore. Right. But if you fly up there, you're totally fine. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, is it substantially less expensive to just try to get a, get driven up there? No, no. The issue is that the flights will only go if the weather's good. Okay. And and they fly big jet. They fly uh, you know um, Airbus A three twenties into Skardu okay. every day now in the summer, uh, so they don't get a backlog. But they only fly if it's visual conditions. And if you got a storm that's there that's lasting for a week, you'll sit in Islamabad. But you know, like if I go over there with Graham or others, you know, you know, we sit there and kind of make a pledge to ourselves before we go that we're going to just stay in Islamabad till we can fly because mm-hmm. we've promised each other and our families and everybody that we're not going to take these roads that I don't think are, you know, I mean, nobody can guarantee your security. So let's go back um, a little bit again to kind of a little bit of a bigger question. It's funny because I wrote this question down here and I thought of it last night while reading your book. It's kind of a joke, but it's, it, I wrote it down as this, what is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> and the, the reason is, is because, you know, reading your book and it's, uh, it's, you know, an expedition by expedition, this, this kind of arc you said as, as you learn more and maybe your success rate didn't always follow that directly, but, uh, but the amount of suffering, Steve, and, and you're kind of the first really avid high altitude guy I've ever had on the show. I've had Conrad on, um, he's not, in, he's not kind of the same, same, you know, one after another, the way you, you've been. And a few other guys that go to some altitude, but uh, the suffering, like the suffering that goes on. So I, I want to get into that, if you don't mind, because, I, again, I'm just a rock climber. And uh, so what do you think, before you answer that question necessarily, what do you think in your early days or as you were getting into climbing and you were going to Alaska and things like that, can you talk a little bit or codify or put into words this, this drive that you had that just wanted, wanted to go to these bigger and bigger mountains? You know, I, I think that when I was a little kid, I kind of grew up, you know, in the 60s. It was kind of in the middle of the space race. And the big deal for all of us little kids when we were running around is that, you know, these rockets are blasting off the astronauts. And this mm-hmm. is all the, you know, the right stuff, you know, kind of stories, you know, that are just sort of happening all around us and in the news. All those people were our heroes. All these guys getting blasted off in rockets. Mm-hmm. seemed like such a big adventure. And, and I wanted to lead this life of adventure and exploring from when I was a little kid. And I wanted to go to the moon. I wanted sure. to be one of those guys. But I got a little older, and I'm kind of like, nah, that, that, there's only like 
four or five of those guys that are doing it. It's probably not going to be me. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking around in books, and I saw these people climbing big mountains. And I go, well, that looks like the most otherworldly thing that you could possibly have that I could probably, and I know I can go do that. Mm-hmm. I got super interested in, in, in uh, you know, big mountain environments, you know, from when I was a little kid and, and kind of started finding places I could get. Where were you? I was in Where'd Seattle. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you and, were among uh, mountains. And, uh, you know, so... You know, I found, you know, friends of mine that were in the Boy Scouts, and I kind of joined up with that and got into backpacking and, and uh, winter camping. And, and then when I was 14, one of the kids' dads started taking us climbing. So I was doing all those volcanoes in the northwest, like Mount Rainier. And Mount, I climbed Mount, Mount St. Helens was my first climb back in 1968, when that was before it blew up. And... Uh, so I always kind of had this desire in the back of my mind. I wanted to go climb these big peaks. It seemed like such a big venture, adventure. All these local people that, you know, you could see these pictures of these expeditions going with all their porters. It seemed so exotic, you know, that, that I really, that's what I, that was I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and. Did your family or have any background in no, it? You were no. just the black sheep. You were trying yeah, to do this. On no, it. no, they, okay. they, they, uh. You know, I came from a big family, and, you know, my parents were all concerned that my, my siblings were going to, you know, get drunk and crash the car, or one of my sisters was going to get pregnant as a teenager, and they had to kind of watch out for, you know, those kinds of situations right. with teenagers, and I'm going off, going climbing, and they thought it was just healthy being in the outdoors. You know, my mom used to say when I'd get in the car with my friends and wave goodbye and say, have fun hiking with the ropes. Right. They had no idea what okay. we were doing. Okay. And what was that first exposure? How did you how did you find it? Did you was it Boy Scouts? Was it well what? from Boy Scouts? Okay, and then when yeah. we got to drive, then you know we'd sort of just go ourselves. Okay. And, and back then, you know, this was like in the late '60s, early '70s. There, re- you really there wasn't really any place to go for people to teach you. We just sort of teach ourselves. Okay. You know, so when some of these books started coming out, like Rel Robbins' Basic Rock Craft or you know Advanced Rock Craft, I mean, those are big deals for us because mm-hmm. it really kind of we would learn from books and you know there were there were no YouTube videos you know, kind of showing us how to do it. So yeah, let's skip into the future now and get get more towards my my problem I have with all this stuff is um uh you know I use this word suffering and the word get it's kind of gets thrown around in the in the business as it were it, it, I think to some it's criticized because wow what is true suffering you know imagine living in Somalia or whatever but this idea of returning as often as you have and as regular as you do it uh, I think that's kind of one of the things that sets you apart and gains you a ton of respect out there is this this longevity literally like you're alive which you know as we know can be unusual for someone who's put himself at risk as much as you have in the mountains but also just the fact that you've stayed just passionate about going up high and and being on these trips so knowing that and getting into it and realizing that you know some of this some of each one of these trips is you know what we would look at as being miserable how do you look at it and how do you sort of compartmentalize this idea that you know i'm going into this place i know if some of these days are going to be brutal we just know that you know where where does that desire come from or how do you compartmentalize it or maybe you don't look at it like that you just look at it as an athletic endeavor i think the experience is so amazing mm-hmm. you know it's so ethereal you know you get up really high it's 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 dreamlike it's dreamy 
And the, the, the size and the scale of this environment that you're in is so massive. And it's so much bigger than anything in the world, er, else in the world. And I just sort of love being in it. And the effort that it takes, you know, to sort of get there. I mean, it takes effort to do anything that's, sure. you know, that's worthwhile. And to me, sometimes I think about when you're dealing with a lot of... Um, kind of physical discomfort or pain, you know, when you're having to breathe that hard or move and it's, it hurts, is that, you know, I, I, mean, I tell myself, you know, you know, pain's just a feeling. Okay. It's just a feeling. Sure. You know, and it's not, it's not something that has to control you. You know, it's a feeling like if you're happy or you're sad, you know, or, and if, you know, I mean, there's some, some kinds of pain that you really have to pay attention because something's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and there's other kinds of discomfort that you have when you're, when you're working hard at something that you want to do, that is just part of it. And then I really kind of try to embrace it. And then as I get older, I'm like, how lucky am I to still be able to do this because, you know, it hurts, but there's going to be a time not too long from now where I won't be able to do it. And I'll look back on those moments with a lot of envy. The, the other, I guess, big kind of question that surrounds your career um, and reading your book as well, because you fill in some of the details about your life outside of mountaineering as well, is the balance that you've created somehow in terms of having a family, having a career, which we talked about in the very beginning, and the, again, the frequency and the amount of expeditions that you've managed to go on over the years. I mean, it seems... Again, like a lot of folks, a lot of climbers, they have a period in their life where, you know, it's mountaineering and eventually those other things catch up with them and then it slows down. It doesn't appear to happen to you. I mean, you're talking like the physical limit will be the end, not, not necessarily anything else in your life. Do you have a kind of um, overriding philosophy or, or method or idea about how you've managed to do this for so long you know, and keep these other parts of your life relatively intact? Well, I mean, I think of, of, for me, that there's kind of three big things in my life that, that have meant everything to me, and, and that's been my family, my career, that sort of was able to make everything happen, and the kind of experiences that I wanted to have in being close to nature, close to the in the in this big mountain environment in a very intimate way, you know, and ex- ex- experience the kind of power and awe, you know, of that, and and so it's just it, it was just always kind of a juggling act between those three things, and oftentimes I felt like um, I was never doing a really really good job with all three of them okay. at the same moment, <laughs> you know, it was like maybe I was doing really good with one of them and the other two, well, I was kind of ignoring them, and then. I kind of was always conscious of that, you know, so I wouldn't ignore one of those things for too, my, too much time because if you did, then that's going to fall apart, sure. you know. So it was just sort of kind of like trying to balance things between those so that, that uh, and, and it also meant that I couldn't do everything. You know, I couldn't go on every climbing trip that I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I mean, in my, in my career, people would come up and offer me promotions to do different things, and I'd tell them no. You know, I could have made a lot more money, but I knew that 
if I took that promotion, that meant that I had to travel all the time. I'd be getting on a plane Sunday night. I'd come back, you know, Thursday night. And then if I turned to my wife and kids and said, oh, I'm going to go climbing for the weekend, which meant I'm gone 100% of the time. That wasn't going to work. Right. So it was, it was a balancing act. But, but, but I was pretty aware of what I could say yes to and what I could say no to. And, and to kind of be aware mm-hmm. of that all the, all the time, you know, and not... not not get myself into too much trouble in any one particular area at a time. So let me ask you the other side of this longevity question. And I believe I might have asked Conrad this as well and some other climbers that I've had on. But then there's the actual literal longevity that you've had. And as a, as a high-altitude mountaineer, been close to tragedy, and there's just no doubt that it's, a, it's sort of a part of the game after a while. But what do you think it is if you could, if you can sum it up or maybe if you're going to sort of toot your own horn or, or self-reflect, do you think there's anything other than luck that's gotten you through this? Do you have a characteristic that you rely upon in terms of risk assessment, in terms of your abilities to say no or, or what have you that's gotten you to this point? Or do you think it's some part of it is, is the gods and rolling the dice and some fateful things? I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe some people would disagree, but I think I think I'm pretty conservative, you know, mm-hmm. about things that I'll, that I will and I won't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty methodical about how, how I go through through this, you know, planning for these kinds of trips. You know, we talked about earlier, but also kind of about what what I think dangers are that we have. And mm-hmm. and um, and, you know, we, we we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to, to minimize those risks and. Um, you know, I, I really won't go on any routes that have have objective hazards where we're walking under seracs or, you know, most of the stuff that we're climbing now is pretty steep. So, you know, we don't get so much of an issue with snow stability. N- nothing's guaranteed, you know, in life. But, you know, I, I, I like to feel like I'm pretty careful. You know, mm-hmm. the first couple of chapters in the book are all about failing. You know, it, you know, from my first trip to to the Kerr in 1980, to when we, the first big success we had in climbing the North Ridge of K2 in 1990. I mean, that was 10 years. And we, we really, I didn't really have a lot of success in between on these big mountains. And so it was a pretty slow learning curve. And I think a lot of the, the things that, that really helped, you know, keep me safe over the years was really trying to think about that, that this is a long game. You know, this isn't something that this particular trip has to result in a success. And, and in fact, one of the things I talk about in my book is in that first 10-year period of, of, of trying all of these, um, these things and we were failing, I could see that, that actually we were getting better and we were learning more about how to do it. And at a certain point, maybe about ter- two-thirds of the way during that time period, I could see, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. Okay. And I actually started enjoying it because I was really enjoying just the process of learning and the journey itself. And I could see down the road that, oh, yeah, if we just kind of keep doing things like this, we're gonna result, it's going to result in success. And then we're going to have more success after that because we know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I, I mean, there's a certain amount of luck with with you know being in the wrong place at the wrong time and and we all know can think of examples of that one of the things we learn out of this is is acceptance things can happen you know and and in all kinds of strange ways and not just in climbing you know it's we don't know why certain things happen in life and and sometimes we just have to accept them but i think this has been as a big a part of my life as anything else that i'm doing and i can't imagine myself not 
being able to go and have these adventures, you know, if I was still capable of doing it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really, a, a, I get really excited still about, about doing it. You've talked about this arc in the book and what you're just saying just now is about learning and, and starting to enjoy that learning. And, you know, I, I'm a huge evangelical for the climbing life and, and for what it brings you as a person and can expand into the rest of your life. And, and that's a little bit about what this podcast is about. But do you have any feelings about what you've taken from that part of your life? And you talked about three different mm-hmm. things going on in your life. That's informed maybe the way you've acted in those other two parts of your life. Mm-hmm. Are you able to point to lessons or just maybe growth that affected you elsewhere from from being on these big expeditions and and the closeness you had with your partners or whatever mm-hmm. or maybe the conflicts you had with your partners right, all right, those sorts of things right right i think a lot of us you know i don't care if you're a rock climber or if you're an alpinist or you do big mountains that any particular project that you have or a goal you have to be like a big mountain or something like all of those goals to me are simply just the inspiration that you have that keeps you going in the kind of life that you want to have. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I was 14, I explained that I wanted to lead this life of exploration and adventure. Well, every one of these trips, you know, over the years has been every one of these, these peaks has, has, it was a goal that inspired us to basically lead this life of adventure and exploring any one of those individual goals in my mind there's kind of meaningless Mm -hmm. you know i don't care whether you climb k2 everest without oxygen or new routes or whatever at the end of the day it's sort of those are the goals that help you to lead the kind of life that you want to lead okay and but one of the things that i didn't know when i was like 14 was that that sort of process of having these goals to help you lead the life that you want to have. There's these values that you, that just, I think are a natural byproduct of that, that get instilled in you in the process Mm -hmm. that end up becoming probably even more valuable. Mm -hmm. And these are values like partnership and empathy and stewardship and fortitude, AKA suffering, right? you know, and, and the things that really make you the person that you are, you know, because at the end of the day, if you climbed all this stuff and led this lifestyle and everybody thought you were a jerk, what good is it? Right. It's absolutely no good, you know? Uh, And, and, and so really at the end of the day, it might seem like a very convoluted and weird path, but this sort of journey to lead the lives of, you know, and, and to get motivated to these things, I, I feel like I've come away from it with kind of a set of values that really are are at the end of the day, things that I, that I really want to achieve. Right. Right. Because that takes work. Right. You don't just, you know, we're all a work in progress Mm -hmm. and, you know, how we become doesn't doesn't happen by just sitting around on the couch. Occasionally we've talked on the show with either mountaineers or or really obsessive climbers or even we've just sort of theorized about a little bit of that obsession of that uh, of that draw to do these routes. And some climbers deal with it just fine. Others get drawn into, you know, an obsessive thing that ends up as a dark part of life. Like you just said, you had three parts of your life and you occasionally had to ignore a couple, but you were aware enough to not let them go too far, but plenty of climbers. And I think, you know, the history of mountaineering is, is, is littered with these sorts of stories of ignoring everything else and maybe 
you know, to your peril, as it were. Have you ever stopped at all and reflected on maybe I'm pushing too hard right now on this mountaineering thing? Or can you reflect on any lessons you saw from climbers around you that maybe were pushing, uh, you know, too hard and, and going into that place of unhealthy obsession? To me, I think because I feel like I, ha- I was trying to balance these kind of three parts of my life, it kind of made it so that, and if I was, re- it was truly going to be a balance so that the other, other, if there was one that I was doing and the other two didn't just fall off a cliff, I had to kind of bounce around between them in a way where I could not get too obsessed with any one of them. Because mm-hmm. if I did, then, then the other ones would fail. And as a result, I mean, I don't see myself as a climber where I achieved the kind of you know, excellence you know, in terms of technical ability mm-hmm. or um, uh, you know, brilliance you know, that some other people that I know have. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, I've certainly hung around with enough angst-ridden sort of narcissistic alpinists to sort of know that I don't want to be like that, (laughs) you know. And I feel like I was, I I ended up being sort of pretty happy with myself because... Because shame on you. Yeah, That's but, not what mountaineering is about. You know, Didn't you be, read Kiss or Kill? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think sort of having other aspects to my life besides just climbing kind of helped me put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, which is really that it's just a sport. And seeing that at the end of the day, now that I'm sort of an old guy, you know, and I can kind of see that what's really most important is that the values that they that, that the whole process helped instill in me along the way ended mm-hmm. up being the most important is that any one of these individual clients doesn't really it doesn't matter that much, right. you know, and it makes it easier for me if I get into a situation where I don't like what I see, you know, or I don't like what I'm doing, or I don't feel right about it. I can walk away from it. And it's not like some big traumatic thing for me, because t- for me, it's just another little piece in the puzzle, you know, that that piece doesn't have to be put in the puzzle today. It can be tomorrow or the next okay. day or maybe never. It, you know, the picture's still there. And uh, that, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel like with climbing that I ever have really experienced okay. the dark side. All right. And in, in the passing the torch idea, is that part of, I guess, the lessons that you're maybe wanting to instill in some of these younger climbers? I don't know. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll learn out of it just like I did, you know, just, just it, it'll be whatever it is for them you know for me i think i probably get more out of it than they do right. you know they may say they're getting a lot well great you know but i mean for me to hang around with you know young people and go out and like be going after these objectives still super inspiring for me because you know uh they're they're trying to get after it and they still like me hanging around with them they think i can keep up and and you know how great is that right. you know i mean i walk around every day and i just sort of pinch myself because it's like my life turned out way better than i thought it would you know from when i was a little kid it's right. like when i was 14 sitting around like just dreaming about climbing i never thought in my wildest dreams that i would get to do as much stuff that i've done you know so um i'm just incredibly grateful you know and grateful for the relationships i get to hang out with some of the coolest people that imaginable and uh you know, how great is that? A little bit more about your climate, and then I want to switch gears to maybe some of the political stuff with the book and, okay. and the observations there. But yeah. as a climber, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier your logistic sense, which has to make you 
extremely valuable on a, on a expedition because I imagine when you're compiling a team, there's folks that are good at that. And then there's folks that probably aren't as good at it and have been brought on for other reasons, so to speak. But as a climber and up on the climb, you know, as it were, and, and some of the times in the book, you talked about this being with George Lowe or, or these other people and, and, and swapping leads and, and trying to kind of prove yourself up there with, with those guys. What do you think is your strengths as a climber? Like what, what kind of climber are you uh, up on the mountain uh, when you get out and it's your turn to, to push new ground? Where do you think your strengths lie? You know, I think like on a big mountain, um, one of my probably strengths is that, is that um, probably on, you know, physically is I, I can stay healthy enough to be a, a, a good contributor up high. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you probably read these stories in the book, especially some of the earlier ones where we had bigger expeditions and, and also, you know, we were going for the first time, so they weren't necessarily with people who had proven experience at altitude. Um, huge attrition rate. Right. You could start out with a group of eight or ten people, and halfway through the trip, you, you know, for various different, usually health-related reasons, um, you might only have two or three people that are still really active. Like on my first trip to K2 in 1986, we had, you know, I don't know, six or eight people, climbers on that expedition, and at the end, it was just Alex Lowe, George Lowe, and me that were still really healthy enough to sort of keep going. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know... So I basically, I think I'm reliable. Okay. You know, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily going to be the most brilliant person. You know, you know, like on, back in those days, if if we would get to like a really hard technical pitch, I might just say to Alex, like, why don't you do that? Sure. You know. Yeah. yeah. But just then we might get into a there. situation. Yeah, shoot him up. But then it would be sort of like you know he'd get all antsy and jumping around, and then I would say to him, well, let's just calm down. You know, mm-hmm. we're just going to hang out here for a while, and then when it gets good, we'll go. You know, and we'll just play cards or something. You know, and um, it, I, I think that that I see with a lot of climbers, it's really hard for them to play the long game. Mm-hmm. You know, these these kinds of ventures um, are are complicated in, in so many different ways, you know, politically, uh, economically, you know, logistically, uh, financially, and then just skill and experience wise that if you want to really be successful on, on these kinds of objectives, it takes a while to kind of figure out how to put the pieces together and you have to have the patience to do that. And I think that's one of my strengths. Well, speaking of patience too, um, again, as a person who who doesn't know this world that well, other than reading, I mean, I've read the books and all the classics and everything else, but the, the patience in the waiting game, I think seems to get glossed over quite a bit. And even in like your book, you, you know, it's like I waited at, uh, you know, camp three for two days for everybody to return or, you know, 10 days here or, and, and I just suddenly internalized it that, you know, you're in a crusty little tent in a storm or whatever, just hanging out, waiting, waiting for two whole, I mean, 48 hours. Like if you told me to wait in my living room for 48 hours, I'd lose my mind, you know, out of boredom. So, I mean, I don't really have a question here. Maybe you can comment on it, but just this idea of all this downtime on these mountains and it's not downtime in like a pleasant place or even in a safe place necessarily. Like, uh, I mean, 
that must be a part of your personality. I mean, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Are you just able to just be internal for that whole time? And are you busy heating water? And I mean, what's going on at two, when you're just like two days in a tiny tent on a ridge somewhere waiting for somebody to show up? Yeah, well, certainly on those earlier expeditions with the big expeditions we had that, you, you know, we made the mistakes back then of, of like establishing these camps and then when the weather would go bad, we would just hang out there and like do nothing, you know, or maybe you'd have a book with you, you know, to read. Um, kind of probably, in, certainly in the last probably 20 years of these kinds of trips, we have a, a much stronger um, st- you know, the strategy that we use is when the weather goes bad, you just boom, you just go all the way to base okay. camp. And then we're hanging out at base camp where we've got a cook, you know, you've got your base camp tent. We all have our own tent and I've got my, my, my music. I've got all my books. Sure. Sure. A lot of like, you know, frankly, a lot of the writing that I did for this book was on expeditions. I'm okay. sitting in there like typing away on my little computer. And, and, and frankly, you know, with, in my life, when I talked about sort of balancing these three things, when I would come back, you know, like to Seattle, you know, where I was working and, you know, you know, where Ann and I were raising our family, um, I was so busy all the time, you know, trying to juggle all these things that I never had any time to really think about anything. Uh-huh. And I actually relished that time, you know, okay. that downtime, because it was the only time in my life I could sit around in a tent for a week or something and read or write or, or just, you know, contemplate my navel, you know, right. just slowing everything <laughs> down. And, and a lot of us, you know, run through life and we never actually kind of stand back and look at ourselves and, and say, do I like what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. You know, is this great? Am, am I psyched? You know, because you're so busy from the day to day, you're you're so busy dealing with stuff at sea level that you never kind of look at your life from 50,000 feet and say, hey, is this working the way I want it to be? And I really enjoyed actually sitting around and having opportunities to do that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I've had times where getting on a on an overnight flight or like an eight hour flight or a 10 hour flight to, to Europe or something. It was mm-hmm. actually something I was looking forward to, Yeah, you know, just to sit there and do nothing or exactly. read a book or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of get it. That's interesting. Yeah. And I was, I was sort of more thinking about, like you said, the early days when you're just like, you know, on a ridge. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Like, that, that wasn't good, good actually. That no. was not good, right. you know. And, but so you guys figured of, it out. We figured yeah, out. It was right. part of the learning process because, I mean, the main thing that happens either at high altitude, if, if you get stuck for a period of time at high altitude, you just, uh, your, your body just uh, uh, decays, you mm-hmm. know. You just, it just, ex- the higher you are, the more time you spend higher up, you know. It, it's kind of like you go on these trips and you come and you really fit. You get acclimatized. You reach this peak level of acclimatization and you still have your fitness. But then it peaks out and then it drops off because your body's decaying at altitude and if you're f- too far down that backside by the time you go to the try to go to the summit you're not going to make it because you're too tired mm-hmm. and 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 what what i learned especially from the, some of those early trips is that we we're spending too much time h- high up on the mountain and it was really ex- you know accelerating that decay curve you know you know for us so that you know like in 86 when alex george and i were trying to make a summit attempt on k2 and early August of 1986, we were already way down the other side of that sort of decay curve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably one of the big reasons why you didn't make it. Right. So let's switch gears for the last bit of this to kind of your theme in your book, Climbing Through Conflict is the subtitle, right? Is that it? Climbing Through the Cashmere Conflict. Cashmere Conflict. And it started with the Cashmere Conflict. And then in addition to that, it's morphed into the the post 9-11 world over there and the influence from Afghanistan and, right. and all, all the 
myriad of, of things that are going on with, with tribal conflict and, and religious conflict and all these things. So, but to start with, like, what was it about the Balti and what's the other uh, culture? Yeah, cultures that blew your mind or attracted you initially because, you know, the praise for that in your book is clear. Uh, about their culture and what what's what's uh, what's enticing about it or what you admire about it. Well, I mean, these people are incredibly capable of of surviving and living in these villages at high altitude in this incredibly rugged mountain landscape that just makes them really rugged, tough people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, by our living standards, to kind of see how they survive, you know, kind of from year to year, it's quite quite daunting and quite amazing to me and especially on the early trips that we went there I mean some things have changed you know that some of these villages have gotten road access and things have improved for them but I mean early on you know we would go through some of these villages and people would be like hardly seen foreigners before you know Mm -hmm. we'd run into these incredible health problems that they were having and and so I just and 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 in spite of the fact that they had nothing the thing that really impressed me about them is that they wanted to give everything they had to you. Mm-hmm. I hardly know my neighbor across the street. Sure. You, you know, where I live in Seattle, you know, and these people, I'm a stranger walking through and, and, or, you know, the, the people that are staff, you know, they might, they just met me. I think it's this, this uh, philosophy that kind of builds up in these villages where people have to rely on each, each other so much for their survival and dependent on each other for survival that there is this kind of mutual giving. They're in it together, you know, um, you know kind of how can we help each other? Mm-hmm. And as I think that for all of us, as we acquire more resources, you know, more things where we can live independent lives, we, you know, it really kind of shifts our, our, our perspective from one of, you know, kind of mutual helping to, hey, I'm just in this for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to pay my taxes. I don't want to like, you know, if, if there's money for the school kids and I don't have any kids, well, why should I pay any of that? I mean, it, 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 and, and it's just so different, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and we have so much. And I think that, that this dichotomy. Yeah, it's know, like really a paradox. Like a the paradox. more we have, the less we want to give it. And exactly. the less they have, that's the more exactly, they give it. Right? That's exactly right. And it's just so, so it just, just, it blows you away. Sure. And what do you, what is their uh, attitude towards climbing and towards what you guys are up to? And I say this because in past shows, uh, like Stacy Bear uh, was, a, was a, a guest on the show and, and he went to Angola and, you know, the people there in these villages just couldn't believe that they'd showed up just to climb rocks, right? Like what a strange thing to do. And um, in some of the stories in your book, you know, the, 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 Folks, your cooks and the and the people and the liaison officers on your on your trips get very excited about you know your success and and very concerned about your safety and but in general were you surprised at their attitude towards what you guys were up to or did you find more people were mystified than maybe I'm reading into or or, or is this like a a thing that they just understand is like well you're here to do this adventure thing and our lives are similar like I don't know my I think my experience with them is that for the most part you know I mean it kind of depends on how well educated and what their individual lives are like I mean some of these people in the vi- the villages are are so poor that you know just 
just getting through the day or getting through the next year and try and they're and trying to you know you know make sure that their children survive just takes up all their time um but then some of the, most of the people that we're working with are probably the more well-off people in the village that are starting to get some money from tourism they may be a little better educated they seem to pretty get pretty much get it i mean right. they grew up in these villages i mean I love this story because Nazir Sabir, who's probably the most famous Pakistani climber, did first ascent of the west face of the K2 with Japanese in 1981, um, first Pakistani to climb Mount Everest. He's a celebrity guy there. He's been a friend of mine there since my first trip in 1980. And I was doing an interview with Nazir a few years ago, and I said, well, how did this get all... And, and Nazir grew up in one of these tiny little villages in Hunza. And, and I asked him, I said, well, well Nazir, what... What got you into this? Like, why did you want to start climbing the mountains from being a little sheep herder kid, you know, in the village? And he said, well, these big mountains surrounding me when I was a little kid herding the goats. I thought if I got to the top of one of these mountains, I'd be able to see America. <laughs> I mean, to them back then, America represented just sort of the world. Right. You know, it was very far away and, they, you know, it's like big, rich country or whatever. But it was just, you know, for him, it was like climbing up the mountains would give them the vision and, the, and, and, and be able to see and have exposure to the rest of Because the, these people have, they, they, they want to have a life of adventure and exploring, too, and see what the rest of the world is. And they grew up sort of trapped up in these, these mm-hmm. big little mountain valleys and they don't have a lot of opportunity. And, and you know, so in, in some ways, a lot of those... Those little kids, you know, growing up, they kind of see their mountains and their environment around them as, as opportunity and, and ways to get to see the rest of the world. And in Azir's case, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, I mean, the, the, they just live in the mountains there and they have to do a lot of the same stuff that we do, you know? Right. I mean, you know, we call it scrambling. You know, like there's the, you can go pick up the bi- guidebook that says, scrambling in the Rockies, you know, that you go, you know, some people do on the weekend for fun. Well, what they do every day is scramble. Right. They're out there with their goats and doing stuff and they're scrambling. And so, you know, what they do in some respects is mountain climbing Mm -hmm. every day, but on just kind of a different level. And you said by and large, those cultures uh, are removed from a lot of the political conflict that that's going on uh, in that part of the world. Yeah. And, and the mountains act as kind of a barrier sure. to that, that keeps them isolated from that. And, and they're a completely different uh, religious and tribal uh, group from what I would call sort of the bad guys there. Mm-hmm. And they suffer more than we do by, you know, I mean, there is a whole busload of these uh, uh, Baltis and Burkashi from Gilgit Hunza that were taking a bus back to Islamabad going over the Babasar Pass and bunch of these um, Pashtun Sunnis pulled them off the bus and shot them all, mm-hmm. you know. So they're victims of sectarian violence that's directed at them because they're the minorities there. And as you probably read in the newspapers and stuff, there's a lot, there's get, gotten to be a big, you know, um, increase in the amount of sectarian violence that's occurring. And if you're the minority, you know, the majority is always going to be running around saying, well, you know, we've got the right way of thinking about this and you don't. Mm-hmm. And you guys are... are um, uh, you know, we need to we need to get rid of those people over there who who don't believe in Islam the right way. And uh, you know, so they're they they they're kind of isolated up in there, and they kind of get pretty gripped when they leave from there because then they're going to be surrounded by people that they actually perceive as uh, having the potential to cause them harm. Right. So, you know, you talked at one point in the book. Uh, I can't remember 
the expedition maybe it was Everest actually, where as a lot of mountaineers, alpinists in your cohort at some point confronted big commercial style expedition climbing and got enough of a taste of it to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Was, is that right? It was the Everest trips? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> with Sandy Pittman and the whole thing. Right. You were involved in all that uh, kind of in a, in a peripheral way. You know, in looking at the, the nature of Everest climbing now and the influence of Western tourism on Nepal... Uh, for better or worse, what is your feeling about sort of the insertion of, of Western technology ideas, people into this part of the culture, even at a limited basis? Although there's some, you know, it's fairly frequent, or at least it has been in the past if it's slowed down right now. You know, do you see it as a, as a positive thing, as a neutral thing, or are there negative parts about uh, this idea of, you know, flashy mountaineers showing up in, in these places? Well, you know, that's a really complicated question, um, and I think... We have two minutes left. You're fine. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> you know... Well, your experience... And there, and, I mean, there's and good things good and enough. bad things, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, the good things is it provides them with economic opportunity, um, and I think, you know, the Westerners that go there, they're, they're, they're wanting to have their adventure. It gives them sort of an opportunity to, you know, do something that, you know, they're psyched about. Um, I think that the downside is, um, you know... You know, how are these local communities, their culture, you know, are they being, how's that being preserved? Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, especially on, 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 these, on these peaks like Everest where you're, where you're putting, you know, um, you know the local uh, population, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, and especially through dangerous areas like on Everest, the Kumbu Icefall, you know, like I think if you did the, ran the numbers, probably a lot of these Sherpas are making way more trips through the Kumbu Icefall than the Westerners do, you know, and is that ethical, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, I think there's, there's, there, there's um, you know, things like that that I think people need to think about. Um, and I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. Um, it's not something that really appeals to me um, because to me it doesn't feel like the kind of adventure and exploring that I wanted to do from when I was a little kid. Um, but for some other people, that is very much in line with, with, with what they want. And, and, and it kind of just depends on the person, too. You know, I, I've seen some people, they come away with from those experiences. When I have conversations with them, I'm like, you know, wow, that was a really cool guy. You know, a really, really cool person. You know, they had, they made a lot out of that experience. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I'll run into people, you know, they'll do that. And all they want to do is come back and, and just tell everybody about what they did mm -hmm. and, and, and think that everybody's going to think they're wonderful because they climbed Mount Everest. And which, in my opinion, is not so cool. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, I, 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 th I, th I think that, uh, I think we just need to be careful. A couple of last questions about uh, your position now um, as a possible inspiration for younger climbers. And, you know, I've asked this to other climbers as well. You look at your 14-year-old kid that you keep referencing, and, and he'd probably be amazed to know that you're now, you know, someone who younger climbers look up to the way you probably read about and looked up to, to the mountaineers of the 60s and 70s. So could you, and this may be a long <laughs> answer too, but maybe not, to go, folks going over there to these young climbers who are inspired to, to go over to Skardu and go into this part of the world, 
you know, what would you say could be like a quick tip rundown, shakedown on, on conduct and the way you think that they should be traveling through that part of the world in terms of, of, of again, this, this inserting a foreigner into, into a very kind of set old culture that's up in these mountains? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that if you have a, a, a set of values when you go over there in the first place, which is, you know, that you treat everybody like with respect, you know, it doesn't matter how poor they are or whether the thing they're doing for you is just a little thing or a big thing. You know, one of the things that we always do over there that actually people don't do so much anymore is that we've always run our own trips. Uh, I mean, we hire an adventure tour company, but it's pretty common right now for like, if you were going to go to to a mountain in Pakistan. He I want to go here and you talk to your adventure tour company and they'd say, okay, it's going to be $5,000 a piece. You write them a check for that. And then they just take care of everything. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. You know, what we do is we sort of, we go over there, we, we, we have them help us a little bit, but then when we hire our porters, I pay them the porters, the money. Mm-hmm. It comes from me or one or, or Graham or, or Chris or Scott or somebody that, so you have that kind of relationship with them where you know you're working with them you're mm-hmm. not isolated from them so i would really encourage people if they're going to these places in the world don't let your adventure tour companies do everything for you because you're cheating yourself of a big part of the experience to really be able to get to know the local people you're working with by by having your hired help do all that stuff for mm-hmm. you and and the and then the other thing i would say to to uh, young people going in climb. I don't care whether it's there or any place else. We always have kind of a little motto, you know, before we head out on the climb. And I don't know, it came from maybe one of my heroes from back in the 60s or 70s who said that when we go to the mountains, we come back safe, we come back friends, and we go, and we go to the summit, and, and in that order, uh-huh. you know, in terms of priorities. Sure. So it's like, you know, the most important thing is you got to come back alive. You know, and what good is it if you get to the top and you come back and you all hate each other? You know, um, you got to find some way of working things out with your partners in a way where, you know, everybody is 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 feeling like you know they're an important contributor to whatever it is that you're doing. And and at the end of the day, if you can get to the top of the thing, great. But you don't always. You can always come back. All right, Steve. Well, thanks for sitting down. And uh, I know it was a little complicated to get this done, but you somehow ended up in Carbondale. Yeah. So no, thank perfect. you. I'm just happy to do it. It's perfect. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to your talk tonight. Hope to get up, up there. And uh, if anybody is out there and wants to learn so much more, uh, the book is Karakoram. Climbing Through the Cashmere Conflict. Climbing Through the Cashmere Conflict. Mountaineers Books just came out in April this year. Okay. So it's out. It can be found at your... Is there any place you can buy books anymore? Or is it all online? Well, you can you can buy it online from Mountaineers Books, yeah, cool. which is kind of cool because you're supporting a, a small publisher. You can also go to the Evil Empire and, and <laughs> order it on Amazon, right. uh, probably for a few dollars cheaper. But uh, you know, um, I will have to make a nice plug for Mountaineers Books here. They're probably the largest English language publisher of books in this genre in the world, and. Um, and, and it's a really tough business, and they really need our support because if it wasn't for them, this story would not be getting told. Right. And um, if, if you like hearing these kinds of stories and you want to read about these kinds of stories, support these publishers who, um, who, are, who are putting these stories out there and, and do that by buying their books. 
Absolutely. Thanks a lot for that. And thanks for sitting down, Steve. Thank you. Okay, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Steve Swenson for swinging through Carbondale and sitting down. Sorry about my cough and that thing. Uh, just It's been nagging me all, all spring. Anyway, remember that if you want to help out the EnormaCast, you can go to EnormaCast.com, click on the Help Out tab, and follow the directions. Write a review at iTunes. Like the Facebook page. Donate some money if you feel like it. Whatever you want to do, remember to tell your friends. Still some folks out there. Never heard of this thing. Please let them know. All right, then. Get out there. Have some fun. Be safe. Talk to your partner. Use your signals. Communicate. And, of course, check your knot.